this is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to episode 12 of Cold War Conversations. Today's guest is someone I've been trying to speak to for some time as his story is a particularly fascinating one. We're chatting with Mark Reeder, a musician and music producer who's been involved in the Berlin and international music scene since 1978, starting as Factory Records' German representative. Through his contacts in the GDR, he put on several secret punk gigs behind the Iron Curtain, and his Stasi file is described as as thick as a phone book. He is, however, denied access to the full file as it remains in the possession of the German Federal Intelligence Service. More about that later. He's also the founder and owner of the first East German electronic dance music label, Masterminded for Success, MFS, which he started in 1990 after being the only and last Westerner to make an album in East Germany in 1989. His is a very interesting and unusual account with some great stories, including how he smuggled a Volksarmee uniform across the Berlin Wall and the unusual currency needed to get your phone fixed in the GDR. We join our conversation as Mark describes how he took the popular UK TV show The Tube around Berlin. Well, if you need to know anything about it, just call Mark Reader up, he'll be able to help you put it together. And so I was lumbered with this job of like the, doing the research for this program, of which, you know, I ended up doing everything for this program. It was like, I didn't just do the research. Was, I did, I, you know, I ordered the, the, the permits, got all the permits so they could, because you couldn't just film on the streets here. It wasn't, it, right. it wasn't like in, in, in England, you know, you, everything was controlled by the Allied powers. So it was yeah. like, you, you know, you had to have your passport with you all the time. Uh, you know, you, had, you couldn't just film on the streets because otherwise you get arrested and carted off. Uh, everything, everything was a military installation. So it was really, you had to get all these like permits and stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I said to the ship, well, if you're going to do Berlin as a city, you know, it's not just West Berlin. There's another part on the other side of the wall. And, and so I, I, I went to all the trouble to kind of like get them to do a program about the whole of Berlin, not just East West Berlin, but also East Berlin. Yeah. Well, they, they, you know, we had the Tödliche Doris and we had Einstürz and the Neubauten and Die Haut and things like bands like this representing West Berlin. Yeah, and the tube obviously wanted something similar to represent East Berlin, but I'm trying to explain to them that you know that there's no such thing in the eyes of the East German government, in the eyes of the East German authorities, there's no such thing as punk. There's no such thing as like you know it doesn't exist because the East Germans believe that punk was born out of the failings of capitalism and through unemployment, and because they had mass unemployment, punk rock emerged. But as there's no unemployment in the farmer and worker state of East Germany. It's impossible to yeah. have punks, right? This was their mindset. Yeah, what yeah. They thought. And I'm like, well, you know, we can hardly have a punk band on, on the program because they never get past the census. So I have this task of trying to find a, a suitable representation of East German youth that would equally be appealing not only to the East German authorities, but also to the, to the British television viewers. 
And I was like really struggling to, to find something. These Germans kept trying to fob off these aging geriatric rockers like from the 60s, like the Poodies and Silly and City and Carhartt and bands like this. And I'm like, the, the youth of, of England will never be able to identify with these geriatric blokes, you know. It's like, it, I was getting nowhere. Yeah. And just by sure, pure chance, I was sitting on the tram one day going through East Berlin and... Um, and I saw this kid with a, two guys walking down the street with an electric guitar and I jumped off the tram and ran, ran after him, stopped him and said, you know, have you got, you've got a guitar in there? You're in a band. And they were like, well, yeah, why? And, and uh, I tried to explain, do you want to be on British television? <laughs> and now like, these kids just looked at me like, as if I was from another planet, you know, like they had no idea. They're like, what is this guy? This crazy English guy asking me to go on British like, TV. Like, because the thought of actually... You know, they, they tried to explain to me that they had no permit to actually play in front of an audience. They, mm-hmm. they, they were a band that played in the cellar just for themselves. And they had, as, as much as they dreamt about being on, you know, on stage in front of an audience, they never ever had done a, even done a gig in front of a, an audience before. Right. They just played in their practice, in the practice room in the basement of a school. Yeah. And, um, and I went, well, let's, let me, let, can I come and see you play, see what you do? Because they said, what kind of music do you play? And they went, like, well, we're like the police. We're like the police, so our music's a bit like that. And I thought, well, the police is kind of safe. You know, it's like, that might, it might be the, the, the borderline between acceptability you know, in the eyes of East Germany and, and, and borderline for the UK, because yeah. we have a few years in the UK. So I went along to their practice place after like a lot of haggling trying to get them to take me there. Uh, and 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 to be honest, I was like really blown away by the way these guys just like just gave me this performance, you know. And they they never played in front of anybody before, you know. Right. And I was like, wow, they're really good, you know. They made their own instruments. They made the, this keyboard had made its own synthesizer. The the guitarist had made his own guitar, you know. Oh. The bass the bass player managed to get a guitar from Hungary via some auntie who'd kind of like brought it as a gift or something, and it was like wow you know these guys are so determined and so so you know i thought i'll try and get these on the telly yeah but when i went to the authorities you know i said i said i, I, I think i found a band and they were like what's the name i said they're called jessica and they, they were, just a minute and the the hair cool was the guy from the 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 the, 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 the guy was looking yeah what a great he was very, hair cool he was very he was very cool he was <laughs> he, he was stony face dressed in a brown suit and he'd go off and think he'd have a fag and came back and went, oh, we'll have, to, we'll have to apply to find out who these guys are. They don't have a permit. And I said, how did you find them? And I think, shit, I want them to tell me. I can't tell them I've just met them on the street. <laughs> so I said, oh, I, I, I was at the House of Young Talent, aptly named place. Um, and I was, I was looking at some of the bands playing there and one of the guys in, uh, uh, from the Free German Youth told me that there's a new band called Jessica who are actually really good and I should look at them. And he's like, we don't know this band. We'll have to look into it. Come back next week and yeah. we'll give you the information. So I went, I went, walked out of this meeting. I ran immediately to the phone box and I immediately phoned the band and said, right, you've now got to go immediately to the Free German Youth at the House of Young Talent and tell them that you've heard this, this uh, rumour that British television wants to put you on the telly. <laughs> and they, the Free German Youth have to vouch for you. 
And because luckily the one the guys they knew the people like some of the guys that worked there. Yeah. They actually did exactly that. They vouched for them and said, Yeah, we've heard of this band and they're really good. And and so this you know, these German authorities had no idea that I hadn't been in any personal contact with this band. Yeah. But it was like this kind of cat and mouse game whereby I'd get the information off the authorities, I'd tell the band, the band then kind of like you know, it was like a circle of like information that was doing the rounds, you know. And they eventually managed to get them on the telly. And it was the first time ever, you know, really on British television that an East German band had ever appeared on telly. But it was the first time ever that anything like that had ever happened in East Germany as well. You know, yeah. a, a completely unknown band with no permits to own electric instruments, no permits to play in front of an audience, no permits whatsoever to exist as a band, rightfully, was suddenly being put on, on British television. Now, these Germans didn't want to be upstage by the two because they were petrified that it was like, like they'd be blacklisted for the, f- the fact that British television managed to find these fantastic bands that's been on, on British television and, th- and, and they don't know anything about it. So, so they got these kids to be on the East German pop program, like literally the week before, <laughs> just so they could say we, you know, we did it first. Yeah, it was a, it was hilarious. Wow, wow. But no, before, I... before, before I did that though, yeah. before I did that, that, that event, that that tube uh, program, I'd actually managed to smuggle another band into East Berlin to do a secret illegal concert, and that was a band called Die Toten Hosen the dead trousers yeah who were a punk punk band who i i was their live sound engineer so i was on tour with them all the time and i knew them from being like early punk rock days right in in in, in berlin and um they, they, it's like okay I, I i i played myself in czechoslovakia with my band yeah i had a band called the unbekanten and the unbekanten means the unknown <laughs> and 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 I'd, and I'd been to czechoslovakia and i met these guys and they invited me to play there at an illegal concert disguised as a wedding reception. Uh, and, and they invited like Czechoslovakia's most wanted to this flight. What was once a kind of like a Napoleon, Napoleonic era service station on the road from Dresden to Prague, right? which was no longer in use. And this kind of like derelict thing was there. And, they, and it, was, oh, it belonged to one of these guys' uncles. Yeah. So we had the run of this place. And, and as they disguised it as a wedding reception, it kind of didn't, didn't fall too much in the, on the eyes of the authorities that it was going to be a gig. It was just like, all oh, these people are going to get pissed at this location, just leave it, you know. But they, what they didn't realize was like, it was literally Czechoslovakia's most wanted dissidents all converged on this place. You know, and people who eventually went on to overthrow the government later on. You know, yeah. Like so this was people. quite a few people from Charter Seventy Seven, and all of them, wow. apart from Václav Havel. Right? <laughs> uh, well, that's um, not still not bad going. But, it was but, like yeah. it's like all plastic Amazing. people of the universe, garage, all these people uh, yeah, yeah. from different bands. Jakim uh, uh, Topol, Sasha Vondra, all these people. Uh, David Copeland, his father, David Copeland's dad was was a famous like avant-garde composer in, in, in Czechoslovakia, and he was a Charter Seventy Seven signature, and he got and he got he got banned from playing, and his son helped to Jakub Topeland write Revolver Review, this kind of dissident periodical that they release uh, yeah. once a month, and um, and we, this these were the guys who who had this gig, and I that went there with my friend Alistair. We went and played our gig there in Czechoslovakia. Not knowing, we, you know, we thought this kind of thing happened all the time, you know, you have no idea that no one had ever done this before, you know. Yeah. And, and I didn't know this until after I'd done the Total Nosen concert that this was actually the fact. Yeah, I, I, you know, after we'd done the Total Nosen concert, 
in East Berlin. Mm. Um, then, then it kind of manifested itself. Where, you know that this was the first time that anyone ever re- dared to do such a thing. Yeah, and, so, and I'd only only, only dis- discovered that I could do this by chance. And, so, and how did you get the band into East Berlin? Because I I sort of read that you know anybody who looked slightly, how can I say it, different, trying to get through Checkpoint Charlie or Friedrichstrasse would have got turned away. Yeah, normally you would have done. I, I was so I was so desperate to get the band. You know, I'd go. I always go went went into East Berlin looking as current service if possible. You know, if you're like a bank manager, you, you got in no problem. You know, but Tottenhausen did not look like bank managers. They looked no. like punks, <laughs> right? And, and and I tried to explain to them where where your most kind of the worst clothing you can think of that's that that's bland. You know, like just go as bland as you possibly can. Yeah, uh, and that's exactly what they did. You know, they they went fairly bland um, and, and, and we, man, you know, we went in groups of three staggered over the morning so that uh, no, it wasn't a big group of people all trying to get in at once mm-hmm. so it was like groups of three and no one was allowed to know, acknowledge the, the others and stuff and we got everybody over you know, into, into East Berlin and then we, 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 we'd, we found a band called Plan Lows who had a, a guitar and a bass and a half a drum kit and one amplifier and some guys from Feeding B who went on to later to become Rammstein, they lent us the other guitars and the microphone. And then in this church, because I'd heard like months before, I'd heard that um, the, 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 the church did a, did a, a weekly thing, a monthly thing called us, a blues mass, mm-hmm. which was basically you could sing, you know, Bob Dylan songs and Eric Clapton and stuff like that. <laughs> this hippie kind of was listening to a conversation I was having and, and we got talking about music and he, and he told me that he had an electric guitar and he played at this blues mass and I was like, where's this? And he, yeah. he wrote it down for me and I went to the priest and asked him, can I do, can I do a gig? And he was like, it's not a gig, it's a church service with prayers. I'm like, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it. Because I was thinking of going there with my band, but no one had let, no one had let us have a cassette record because a cassette player because cassette players were like gold in East Germany. Yeah, you know that's what you recorded your John Peel show on, and so if the if the gig is is raided by the police, so everything will get confiscated, and they didn't want if anything got confiscated, it couldn't be that. Yeah, so we couldn't we couldn't do the gig, you know. So we ended up doing the Tottenham instead, and then in, in retrospect, it was probably a better idea, really, right. because the Tottenham and sang in sang in German, you know. Okay, and did the and not, and not, all, all my friends knew the songs because I smuggled all their cassettes into it. <laughs> <laughs> And and did so the audience knew it was the Totenhosen, but as far as oh yeah yeah anybody else it was well the, the people who we'd invited we invited thirty people yeah to kind of minimise the risk you know it's yeah like, you, you couldn't invite it wasn't a secret gig like a Prince concert where he'd turn up in a big, big van you know at, the, at yeah, some yeah. venue and kind of you know it, it was this was very 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 top secret very 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 dangerous. You know, for the people doing it. I said to the, it was actually two girls, my friends, you know, the, the one girl who'd met me in the Palace Republic and her friend. Right. I said to them, you know, look, 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 if we do this, you know, if we get caught, the first thing that's going to happen to me is that they'll throw me out of East Germany and I'll never come back and you'll never get any new music from yeah. me. But, but if you get caught, your lives will be changed forever, you know. Yeah. It's like that. And, you, you and they still wanted to go ahead with that, even at that risk. Oh, yeah. But, uh, 
it was more about the thrill, really, of doing something like that. It was about, they knew that I was having this thrilling time smuggling music into each Berlin and bringing all these people over for, to me, uh, introduce them to John Peel and people like this, you know. Yeah. And it was, and, and for them, that was like, you know, thrilling, you know. It was like, yeah. Obviously, I was having a thrilling time. They didn't never realize how nerve wracking it was trying to smuggle the cassette into East Berlin. You know, like if I got caught, I would never come back in. But, yeah, you know, th- things would have happened. Yeah, but um, th- th- they wanted to also have this this piece of action. You know, this thrilling feeling that they're doing something illegal, totally illegal. I think, and that's what drove them. They wanted to see the tote nose, and they wanted to meet Campino. They wanted to meet the band. You know, so yeah, it was like. Well, we don't care. Just let's, yeah. just regardless of the consequences, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, and so so the organizer. So it was it was more about the the thrill of doing something illegal rather than a a protest or anything like that. Or? Well, it had nothing to do with the protest at all. Yeah, it really had nothing to do with that. Really, they they knew it was a kind of the church in itself was a form of silent protest against the state, right? If you were in, if you were in part of, were in part of the church, you know, if you joined the church, that was like a say, that was like a saying to the, to the, to the communist government, you know, like sod off. You know? It was like, it was like, that was the kind of silent protest. And, and the church within the confines of the church, people could do really whatever they wanted, but the Stasi was there all the time. Everyone was watching them. You know? um, but they knew that the people knew that if you, if you had anything to do with the church, we were under observation, but we thought let's see how far we can take this, you know. And so we only invited 30 people to try and minimise the risks of, like, anyone telling. And it was 30 of their so-called trusted friends, you know. Not right. at the time, we weren't, weren't really, you know, I, I knew that Stasi were everywhere and everything was like secret police state and everything, you know. You never knew whether someone was listening to your conversation, mm-hmm. wherever you went. Yeah, but I thought my friends obviously know their friends, so they've got to be kind of wary about who's going to come to this gig and who they're going to tell. Yeah, so so they invited thirty people. We said no photos. We got the priest. I had my camera with me. Got the priest to take one photograph. Mm-hmm. I was standing in front of the shirt, and that was it. But wow. unknown to us, there were people there from the Stasi in our group of friends who did actually take some photographs and actually like t- told on us afterwards. Right? Yeah. But the interesting thing was they didn't tell them was before. Now, the reason why is because they wanted to see the gig. They wanted to be, <laughs> they wanted to be part of that, you know. Yeah, yeah. They, it was, there's a one-off opportunity to see the Total Nelson performing. Yeah, too like, good I'm, to I'm, miss. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to miss that. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to scuttle that before it's happened, you know. I, yeah. can, I can tell the authorities afterwards. And that's what they did, you know. Um, funnily enough, like the next, we did, a, we did a, another gig five years later. In Pankow, or in the churchyard, in a kindergarten churchyard, um, part of the church in Pankow. And it was like uh, this band called Division, which were like a new wavy kind of rock band who sang in English. The only band in East Germany allowed to sing in English because the singer studied English at the university, Humboldt University. Yeah. We did this, this gig as a benefit concert for starving Romanian orphans. And we get to this concert. We'd only invited 30 people again for this gig. And when we get there, there's like 500 people there. Like no one could keep the trap shut. Because in the meantime, this total nose and gig had become so mythical. It sparked off this huge kind of wave of punk bands going to the churches and asking if they could 
use the church as a practice place, place where they could play and do gigs. Right. And, and so the churches of East, the whole throughout the whole of East Germany suddenly became this kind of like refuge for for struggling punk rock bands. Yeah, churches. The, the priests were really happy because it meant there was young people coming to the church. You know, yeah, they didn't care. They didn't like the music necessarily, but like, look, they weren't they weren't bothered about that because, say, the statement within the statement, you know, yeah, and 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 that and and so when we did the second gig, that was like, oh shit, what are we gonna do now? You know, the police are sat outside in their larder, and there's like five hundred people converged on this place, and the priest, when we arrived, says, "I'm sorry, but the police have just told us that Tottenham can't play under no circumstances," and we're sitting here. Like, oh, what we're going to do and so you're going to have to tell the people that you know this is this, the state have said this priest was like oh there's so many people and, yeah, just tell them that, that you know Tolton Hosen can't play but uh, a band from Dresden are going to play in the place and he's like what band um, they don't know what the Tolton Hosen look like do they pretend <laughs> 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 that they're a band from Dresden and that's exactly what we did Oh, brilliant! And then, and, and, and the band played for three quarters of an hour and because of his all in all these people. There was obviously Stasi informers, you know. Yeah. They after three quarters of an hour, they obviously knew they couldn't they couldn't hang out anymore and wait for it to to finish. So they, the police came and said, "Right, we we know your plan now. We know lots of Tottenham holes and yeah, stop stop the gig." And we were thinking, "Oh God, this is it now. We're all going to get arrested." And stuff. Yeah. Nothing happened. Nothing actually happened. They let us all disperse. It was too many people. Really. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and I think it would have caused too much of a problem if yeah. they'd actually done something. Physical. And what year was what year was this? A- eighty eight. Right. Okay. Eighty eight. No inclination of following building wall at this point. No inclination that anything was going to go down of any sort. Right. It was, it, it was just quite. You know, it was, it was a quite a tense moment. But then it once the gig had ended and everyone was really happy, it was quite a pleasant atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. So in in eighty eight, there's there's just no sense of of change at all it's just no no business as no. usual in east germany yeah 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 yeah. it was only that my friends told me that in the subsequent weeks for, after this gig all the flats got raided by the stasi you know like they the well the way the stasi would wait till they went out shopping or they went you know went out and drinking in the evening or whatever and they'd break into the flats and then they'd just photograph all the stuff for yeah. the records all the periodicals all this stuff you know, get as much information they could on the people, you know, and turn them really. And, yeah. you know, my friends, my friends said, oh, yeah, and the next door neighbor told us that the Stasi were in our flat. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. <laughs> you know, um, so so we knew, we knew, you know, and as we, because they were, my friends had then in the meantime, I'd befriended some American soldiers in the meantime. 
and we don't manage for the second total nose of concert we've managed to smuggle the guitars and the camera into the into east berlin and 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 they were very very interested in this person you know and this guy going this american soldier and his job in the u.s army and stuff like that and they wanted to know the connections and everything it was a it got a bit kind of unsavory yeah 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 and did you have i mean you mentioned that i mean you're obviously crossing the border a lot of times yeah were the border cards familiar with you or did they just treat you the same each time or was did you develop a familiarity with these guys well no, there was one guy who went in the very, very early, like like seventy nine. It must have been. He was just in a just a kind of like a normal squatty type border guy. Yeah. He, I, I didn't have a key for my flat. I had I had a skeleton key for the flat that I was living because I was living in a in a house that was about to be torn down. It was, it, was a, it wasn't derelict. It was just yeah. an old house, and the, and the and the government was tearing down all the old houses. So I was staying with this group of students who were waiting to be put into another flat. And they said, you can stay here for as long as you want until the house gets torn down. So I didn't have a key for the flat. I only had a, a, a skeleton key. So I went to East Berlin one day, and this, this guy just decides to search me. And he's searching my pockets, and I pull out the skeleton key, and he's like, what's this? I said, that's my door key. He goes, no, you're coming to East Berlin to break into people's flats. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> wild guessing. <laughs> Like, and, and, and then, and then it's the strip search me. Now yeah. I was taking, I'd, I'd been to Czechoslovakia and met some East Germans in Czechoslovakia and I'd taken some photographs of them and I, and I decided I'd duplicate the photographs and then take them into East Berlin. So they have a sort of, you know, my, my photographs as kind of memory of our, yeah. our time together, you know, but I knew that I couldn't take them in the pockets in case I got searched because they'd say, how do you know these people? Because I wasn't really, some, they weren't supposed to have contacts to Westerners and I certainly wasn't supposed to contact any Eastern Germans. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm supposed to be just a tourist going to Alexanderplatz to eat, you know, Erzatz, drink Erzatz coffee and eat cake, you know. Yeah, and have your uh, vinegar soused cabbage. You know, whatever. <laughs> I wasn't supposed to have any contacts with you. Germans at all, and then they see these photographs. I suck them, sellotaped into me, sat to my leg, and as they strip search me, sees these, and then they get like you know, hauled over the coals. Who were these people? Where do you meet? I said, I have no idea. I just took the photograph and I said, I'll meet you on Alexander Platz, and I tried to fake it that I didn't know these people. Yeah, they can't. Well, I thought they they'd bought into this kind of cock and bull story that I'd concocted, but in actual fact, it was just. They really were really, really interested in what I was doing, you know. Yeah. Because they'd, I'd already been flagged by this guy who the first, that first punk rock kid that I met you know, mm-hmm. on, the, on the underground, he was actually a Stasi informer. And as I'd asked him about the underground scene of East Berlin, he'd immediately informed on me, literally like an hour later. Right. That he'd met this English guy who was looking for the underground scene in, in, in Berlin yeah. and he had me addressed and everything. So I was flagged immediately and it was like all these generals and everything come, come to interrogate me, you know, like what are you doing and where are you going? Are you going to meet? And yeah. And the, and, the, and the KGB were very interested in my mission, as they thought I was on. A mission to corrupt the youth of East Germany through music. And well, they were right, weren't they? <laughs> well, well I, didn't, I didn't see it as corruption. I yeah, no. Education. Yeah. You know, but they they saw it as subversion, and they even the, the KGB was so determined to find out what it was I was doing in East Berlin 
that they asked their informant in our MI5 to look into the, the fact, you know, possibility that I, I might be on a black operation of some kind and like hidden somewhere in the archives of MI5. There might be a file with my, my name on it and they'd be able to like, you know, get me that way. I was like, what is this? Fantasy world they were living in. It reminded me of like, you know, that film Burn after reading, it was a bit like that. Really. Yeah. Wow. So did have you ever uh, got your Stasi file from the archive? Yeah, yeah of course, yeah. And but I'm, but I'm not I'm not allowed to see all my Stasi files. I'm I've only I'm only allowed to see a fifth of my Stasi files. Why, why is that? But the rest of my Stasi files nesting in the archives of the the Bundesnachrichtendienst, which is the federal German uh, security agency, and that's all. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of things that I don't know that I'm not allowed to know about my activities in East Germany and Czechoslovakia and Hungary. Uh, and so and so, they're protecting some people. I'm not allowed to see it. I was only allowed to see a very small portion of my file. And and when I I, I went, I opened the um, when the Stasi Museum at Normanstrasse reopened after refurbishment and after they kind of like made this special exhibition and stuff. I gave a talk at the opening evening of that mm-hmm. uh, museum uh, about my activities. Yeah, and um, and I actually met all the people who were from the BSTU who look after the Stasi files and said, "Well, you know, it's been now like nearly thirty years, whatever. What's the possibilities that I might be able to gain gain access to this file?" And said, "Oh, we'll look into it for you." And this January, they wrote me a letter saying, "We're really, really sorry, but we're we're not allowed to have access to your file. We we know you have got one. We know it's as thick as a telephone book, but you're not allowed to see it." Wow. And so no indication when you might, when that, you know, you know, like in Britain, they have like the 30 year rule or something like that. But. I have no idea. They've not said anything at all. The wow. Dean won't reply to any of my correspondence. So. Yeah. It's like, you know, what, well, why can I not see my, yeah. the rest of my file, what's in there? You know? Yeah. Well, I, have, I have my suspicions, you know, and that's, I have my, my, my version of events and, you know, so why, but yeah, it, it's like, you know, it could be. I think everybody wanted to know who I was working for, right? both the East and the West, because I'd go to Czechoslovakia a lot, you know, go to Hungary, mm-hmm. went to Romania, you know, places like this, and Poland. They were very interested in what, what you, why are you going there? You know, what's you, what are you doing there? Yeah. You know, who are you working for? Yeah. And, that's, and, and, and what they didn't understand was, it was I was working for my friends, you know, giving, I was just bringing them happiness, music, you know, f- people who were involved in music, people they could meet, yeah, who, who were from the music business. Yeah, just, just it was just that. You know, I had, I had absolutely no ulterior, ulterior motive. Yeah. Was make my friends yeah. happy. but that would be beyond their comprehension. Oh, completely. That that, that that's what you were. And when when you were stopped, you know, going in, and you said you 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 know you were interrogated. Did they try and sort of say, you know, if you become an informer, we'll let you go, or or anything like that? No, they didn't know. Right. They didn't know. Because I think I think that if they'd have done that, that would have been even more compromised. Because I think the, the, for them, the, the, their idea was, where's he going? This is, this is what, this is what they, the, the, the parts of my Stasi file that I'm allowed to see, what it, what it said in the margins and things. It was like, we have to find out what his agenda is. He's obviously got some kind of 
of agenda of some kind. He's going somewhere. He's taking this someplace. So mm. we have to find out where he wants to go. It's like, don't get him now, because if you get him now, we won't find anything now. We'll find, like, just watch him. In, in, the, in the end, it got, it got to such a point where at the end, um, I was asked to produce an album in East Berlin. Right? Now, yeah. as a normal Westerner, you're not allowed to go into factories or any place that manufactures anything, you know, any, anything to do with like telecommunications of any kind. You're not allowed to go anywhere near these places. But when, when Jessica had had their success after being on British television, they, they were playing the, some kind of gig at some at uh, RFT, which is like the, the television making part of East Berlin. It's mm-hmm. a big factory in the outskirts of Berlin that had a big stage and it was all the people who worked, it was their their yearly part, party or whatever so everybody who worked in this factory was at this this gig and the band invited me to this gig so i went along there and they presented me passport at the entrance and stuff and the walks and sat down and within five minutes they they came and said you can't stay you've got to leave and i'm like why he said, well you might steal the secrets and what you mean not steal like black and white television sets secrets <laughs> you know it's like they drag and they hold me off and drag me off and you know said you can't stay here you have to go. Uh, literally, they picked me up and dragged me out. Yeah. Wow. And um, so I was quite aware of that, you know, that you're not allowed to go in places like this. But here I'm getting an invitation to produce Division as a band. Now, see, after the Total Nolson concert, the Division, their their popularity was grew, grew very rapidly, you know, from from playing, you know, in front of two people to playing in front of 20,000 kind of thing in, a, in the space of a few months kind of just rocketed because of the fact that they've they'd done this gig. Mm-hmm. And and the popularity was so big that the, the, these Germans are like, what we're going to do? The authorities are like, we, we can either ban them, which will make them martyrs and we won't be able to control whatever happens after that. Whereas if we assign them to the record label, the state or record label, the Amiga, then we can control their output. We can control what they do. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's exactly what they did. Uh, and they needed, the band needed a producer, so they asked me if I would produce their record. So, I, so that's I'm that's complete. That must have been completely unheard of. Of you know, a foreigner and a Westerner, particularly, um, producing a, a record for the GDR state-owned label. It it never happened before, and 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 I, well, I I was aware of this. I thought I thought this happened all the time. You know, so yeah, the, you know. There are other bands that were much more popular and bigger, or whatever. They almost had producers from the West producing their albums and stuff. Mm-hmm. I was com- completely unaware that no one had ever actually done this before. So I went to East Berlin and you know spent months trying to make this album. So it was a nightmare making this album. Their, their recording studio was a very, very beautiful place. It was an old cinema and it'd been converted into this wonderful studio. But everything in the studio had been handmade. It was all like it was like Frankenstein's monsters, you know. It was like that kind of thing. It was a made out of all these bits that they that they acquired somehow. But they had like real instruments. They had like you know, I think in nineteen sixty eight they'd been given a bunch of money from the from the from the state to go and buy a, a piano, Steinway Grand Piano, buy a Stratocaster. You know, buy all these amplifiers and yeah. microphones and everything. So they don't, you know, make make this studio into a proper recording studio with with the high end equipment that you can only get if you come to our studio. You know, I, I, I sat there for months, you know, with power fluctuations and the fact that when we started making this LP, East Germany started to fall apart. And and what, what I didn't know though was that 
everybody in the studio were all informers for the Stasi. And they were all informing on me. And the idea was that because I could stay there until after midnight, I'd work for me, could stay there for as long as I like. Right. So it was like it was like you know I'd, I'd work there through the night and go home at like four o'clock in the morning or something. And it'd be like you know they wanted to know what I'm doing, where you're going, what do you do after you've been in the studio, who you're going to see. And at one point, the the singer said, "Oh, you can just come and stay in my flat. There's a flat upstairs. It's empty. It's fully furnished. You can stay there." And I'm like, I don't know about that. Is it, whose flat is it? He goes, oh, it's just like, I've, I've got the key. So I said, well, who, who lives there? Well, it was, like, it was like very ambiguous, you know, about what, who, who, what I, was, I was, I don't know, I don't feel so good about this. And yeah. One, one night, you know, we worked really late and I decided, okay, this time I'll go and stay there. And then walk into this place and it just, just seemed so weird. It was like, it was a big mirror on the wall and I was like, I don't mind the look of this. This is not yeah. This is not really what he's supposed to be, and I was he's sure I'm supposed to be it, you know. Um, in the end, it turns out the singer of the band was in the stars, you know. It was like everyone was in the stars, they just wanted to know what you do, what you, who you're going to meet, and yeah, talking to, you know. Wow, did you feel that did you get an impression you were being followed or or not? No, no, never, never. I didn't know because the people who were in this who were informing on me were my friends, yeah, you know, they were, the, yeah, they were the people that I knew. You know, yeah. there's one person. It was a girl. She wasn't the two girls who'd done the concert, but she was. She was one of their closest friends. Mm. She was the worst informer of everybody. She was like, she was like really destructive in her inf- information. You know, and it was like yeah. a lot of people suffered through her, her telling. You know, but like the fact is, nobody, and even the people who got to see the Stasi files later, were all flabbergasted to find out that it was this girl. Nobody suspected her in a million years. It was like real eye opener. Like, wow, she was really hardcore informing. Yeah. I was going to come on to the sort of fall, fall of the wall, but back, back to the record. Did it sell well? Oh, well, the, the thing is, while I'm making this album, the, yeah. the, the A&R from Amiga, he's like, he said, can you, put a few tracks on a cassette. I can want to go around to the record shops and present it. So I did a couple of tracks on a cassette, rough mixes, and he went off his Traband. And, and you know, a couple of weeks later, he comes back to me, we've got 32,000 pre-orders for this record. And I'm like, it's not even finished. He's like, 32,000 pre-orders. It's an immense amount of records. Yeah. So you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with the money? I'm like, well, what do you mean? Because like, you're going to get paid in East German Mars. What are you going to do with that money? I'll take it out of East Germany. I thought, I don't know. I have no idea. I'll buy a new toaster. And he's like, no, I'll, I'll show you what you can buy. I'm like, oh, God. And it takes me one rainy night in East Trabant around Pankow. Yeah. Pankow was, was known as Volvograd because it was where all the rich people lived. And anyone who was really rich in East Germany, like sportsmen and television personalities and things, they all could all own western cars right the, the only car that they owned was a, was a volvo because sweden wasn't part of nato so they could put you know drive volvo car yeah very few mercedes benz but anyway it's like, it's, he's driving me around going that villa's free and that villa's free and you could live i'm thinking i live in a 20 square meter apartment in west berlin that costs 80 marks and he's and here is this guy showing me these villas that i can buy with all the money that i'm going to make in east germany i mean i'm going to have to live in east germany living in east berlin panko in a villa it's like so <laughs> bizarre but as fate would have it 
the Berlin Wall came down before we finished the LP. I finished recording it. Finished yeah. recording the album. Finished recording it on the 2nd of November, 1989. And then I went with some friends, Dave Rimmer and he's from the friend called Trevor Wilson, who ran this magazine called the Schimbanch Down South, which was kind of a very controversial magazine here in Berlin, kind of like a German version of Private Eye. Right. Um, he's English too, yeah. So we decided to go on a holiday to Romania on a road trip, traveling from Berlin to Krakow, then down to Czechoslovakia, into Hungary, and then from there to Romania. So we left Berlin in the night of the 8th and the 9th of November, 1989, went to Poland, spent on the 9th of November, spent the day in Auschwitz. And nobody in that night, no, not a single person said to us, have you heard, have you heard the Berlin Walls come down? Not a single person. <laughs> we, met, we, we hung out with these students all for like three days, you know, uh, not one of them said, have you heard the news? Yeah. And, 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 and in retrospect, I, re- I realized like probably they thought the only reason we were there was the fact that they thought that, you know, the wall would come down and we decided to go to Poland. Yeah. Had no idea that you had to, you had to like, you know, to, to apply for a visa for Poland took three months to, to get processed. Um, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, it was like, it was mad. You know, we, we traveled through Czechoslovakia, went into the Tatra mountains, Nobody said a bloody word to us, you know. Like, no one said, oh, yeah, the world, the world, the world's come down. We went out to discotheques and danced with all these people and these girls, and no one said anything, you know, like, have you heard the world's come down? Yeah. No information. We get to Hungary, no information, until we get almost to the Romanian border, and I've come to this hotel for our lunch, and I just went in the, in the hotel reception and said, have you got any newspapers? Because I've only got these old newspapers. And he gave us a paper, and it was a picture of a guy drinking a bottle of champagne, and it, uh, on the top of the Berlin Wall, and it said, "East German tro- troops tear down wall." And I'm like, "What? what? It's some kind of like Hungarian satire." It's <laughs> like, "No, this is it. This has really happened." You know? And we, we, we travelled all the way to Romania. We, went on, we wanted to go to, to Dracula's Castle and go to Bucharest and stuff. We yeah. never made it to Bucharest. The security officer came to us and said, "Oh, you know, tomorrow." They're going to be uh, closing the border between, you know, to Hungary. And what does that mean? He goes, well, whoever's in the country stays in the country. So my mate Trevor's like, because he was the only one who had a driving license, he's like, I'm not staying here, I'm leaving. <laughs> so that was it then. We, we had to leave. And, it, you know, it all te- only taken us about the best of about three or four days to drive all this way to where we were. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, but it meant we had to drive nonstop the top speed of about 30 kilometers an hour because there's no motorways or anything in Romania. It's all dirt track. So it took us, it took us literally like 24 hours to get back to the border. And we just managed to get there just before the, the, the before the, um, before they closed the border at five o'clock. We got there about a quarter to five. Wow. Strip, strip searches. <laughs> I thought we'd be like, this is it now. We're not, they're not going to let us out, you know. But we managed to get out, and we came back into Hungary. And it felt like, oh, we come back into civilization. You could get something to eat. There was electricity. You know, people yeah. were quite nice. And then we went on to, so, to Czechoslovakia, and we we drove straight into the revolution, basically. Yeah, right. And by by the time we got to Prague, um, you know, it was like full on. We got to Prague to see my friend, to go to my friend's house, David's house, and. Um, 
it's like, oh, this revolution. You know, it's just made a meeting on Leicester Square. So we're like, let's go, let's go. And we went there and it was like, you know, f- full on there. We were, you know, slap banging their revolution. Right. And after, wow. that, after I think, after about the third day, it was like, this ripple came through the crowd of cheers. It was like, what's happened? And it's like, oh, the government has just collapsed. And suddenly there's my friend, Sasha Vondra, there's Alexander Dubček and Václav Havel waving to the thousands of people in Manchester Square. It was like, wow. It's like, you know, the week, two weeks before he was in prison, you know, yeah. near the year. Because he, he was the press spokesman for Charter 77. There he is waving to the crowd, you know. It was, like, it was really weird. And, wow. and you know, and you come, came back to Berlin, and like nothing was the same again. It, it completely, you know, we, it was the the they'd stolen Disneyland. I, I'm, I'm very, I'm very, I feel very privileged as well that I was, you know, given this opportunity to experience that. No life. Yeah. Now I I found a uh, a great video on YouTube of you playing on the Gleinicker Bridge, aka the Bridge of Spies. Mm. Can you tell me a bit about that? It was a video shoot for a, yeah. for a, a TV program called Music Box, which was like a cable music program precursor to MTV. And I and after doing the tube, the people for I, I did a quite a few other programs as well. And, and one of them was that the, the Music Box decided they wanted to come to Berlin with uh, Ray Cokes and uh, Julie Brown. And they do this TV special, this Music Box TV special. So I took Julie Brown, Ray Cokes around Berlin and showed them everything, met all these bands and organized the entire shoot and everything. That's it for the shoot. And um, the the producer of the program, because he knew I was in a band, mm-hmm. they'd organized that that we would do, that my band would perform at the opening ceremony of the um, was it cable TV being released in Germany? You know, like officially, the cable TV release in Germany would be in uh, in Berlin, and, and there'd be this big gig, and we would perform at this gig. This was the yeah. idea. So we do our gig, and it, and it comes up with this bright idea that that before they go home, they'd like they'd like to film my band performing on the Glenica Brücke. Like after after seeing the two, we really wanted to do this. Yeah, and I'm like, well, it took me like the best part of three months to get permission to film on the bridge it was like I can't do this overnight he goes oh I'll just have a go you know and luckily because I knew the people who worked for AFN and, and stuff mm-hmm. in the meantime you know doing the tube I got to know them really well and I knew the head of AFN and he could pull a lot of strings I just said can you help us out here and he, and he, and he managed to get us a permit for the afternoon so not, like this is in the morning I'd like trying to get this permit and he got us a permit so you can go there now you can do it now. So we, we, you know, got guitars and everything, just re- raced down to the, to the Glenica Brooker, just as the sun's setting. And, and as the sun's setting, we do this take, you know, like on the bridge. And we're supposed to, we, we decided we were going to be spies coming in from the cold, you know, that's why we're all dressed in rain mats with plasters because we've been beaten up in prison <laughs> in East Berlin. <laughs> the only problem was, was that the, the, the Americans didn't have time to inform the Russians on the other side of the bridge. So the Russians thought there was some kind of third world war scenario going on and so these germans are in a real flap and the russians are in a real flap and it was like you know the american soldiers turned up with big machine guns and everything to protect us and our freedom well we made this blooming stupid video so you almost caused an international incident by uh, doing this video shoot 
yeah, inadvertently, inadvertently we did. Yeah. yeah, brilliant, brilliant. And are you still in touch with uh, the people you knew in the East? Unfortunately, only a few. Uh, most of the people that evaporated, you know, yeah. over, over the years. For one reason or another, some left Germany, some stayed somewhere. I don't, you know, like my immediate friends, all of them have disappeared. Uh, it's really sad. Apart from you know my, my Czech friends, like Jakim Topol and, 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 and David Copeland and people like this, I'm still friendly with them. I saw them actually a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, um, you know they, they've they've remained true friends. You know, but all the others, they all evaporated out of my life. You know, uh, very very sad that I felt like you know, they only really wanted to use me for my contact. That's really, yeah, that's, that that's life really. You know, so it is. Yeah. You know? yeah. And and how would you describe Berlin now as a city? Oh, thrilling! Still thrilling. That's good it's for me. For me, it's still a thrilling place. It's still an evolving place. It's still the same place as it always used to be. It still attracts the same people, really. You know. Yeah. It doesn't have the you know the kind of like Cold War element and of, of fear and mm. division and things. That's all. That's dissipated a little bit. It's maybe in people's minds in, in a way. You know, in certain types, but. In generally, it still attracts the same kind of people as it's always attracted. You know, people who feel a bit. If you if you if you if you're a gay man or a transvestite living in some village somewhere, you're going to get your finger pointed at you every day. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you just come to Berlin and you'll be feeling all right. You know, nothing's going to happen to you. Whereas, you know, it's like it's like this. Oh, you know, if you're an artist, struggling artist. You know, you can't afford to live in London. You can't afford to live in America. You can't afford to live in Paris or whatever. You can come to Berlin because, you know, even though people in the Berliners complain about this rising rents compared to anywhere else, the rents are still really cheap here. No, absolutely. Have you got any souvenirs or anything that you've kept from the Cold War times? Tons of stuff, yeah. <laughs> What's the highlights? Give us the edited highlights. Um, well, I once smuggled an East German army uniform out of East Berlin, um, which was very reckless of me to do that, really. I mean, yeah. if I'd have got, got caught wearing that, I have no idea what they'd have done to me. It was like, you know, they just introduced the, the one-stripe, no-stripe camouflage uniform, and I really liked it. It was like, that's really cool, man. And a friend of mine, no, it, like, it, like there were no second-hand shops where you could buy army a surplus, like in the best. Yeah. You know, it was like it was like you got uniform, it had a number on it, it, had your name in it, and that was it. And you had to keep that until you, until you if you ripped it or something, maybe you, you could get another one. But other than that, you had that one uniform, that was it. And this one friend of mine, he managed to get this uniform, and it was an entire uniform. It wasn't just a jacket and trousers. It was a, it was a complete uniform, including. Overalls, tank helmet, <laughs> steel helmet, <laughs> boots, everything. The whole, the whole works, right? And the, and then this camo uniform, and I was like, oh, I've got to have that. And I thought I'll, I'll smuggle bits out over a period of months, you know. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, I can't imagine you just got that out in one chunk, but oh no, I didn't. I, I, but the first, the first, the first thing was getting this camo camo uniform out first of all. You know? Yeah, and it was like. Uh, I put it on underneath my suit. I, had a, I was already like a jacket on. So I put it on there. My mate Alistair was looking at me. He goes like, there's no way I'm going to go over the border with you looking like that. <laughs> it's like, you, you look like Arnold Schwarzenegger with a pinhead. 
it's like and, and i'm like and, and it was like really hot and i was like saturated sweating and and i, and I thought oh, fuck it, i'm gonna if they, if they see me wearing this i'm dead yeah so I went to the, I went, before i got to the border i bought a bottle of vodka and i poured half of it away and i and i took a really big swig of this vodka not not as for courage but so yeah. i have like alcohol in my breath and then i just clutching this bottle just pretended to be completely pissed yeah dagger through the border controls you know and they, and they were like oh it's another piss brit let's quickly get this over and done with yeah so i kind of like managed to get through and my friend alistair we'd we'd, we'd actually bought 20 meters of red flag material for a malaria concert because we were going on tour with this band malaria mm-hmm. and um and in east berlin they had really beautiful flag material so i said oh we look great on stage having this flag material <laughs> hanging over so we got this flag material and then Alice was carrying this flag material and in this paper bag and and he's watching me going through, you know, pretending he doesn't know me. Yeah. And and I'm standing waiting in the line to go to the the last passport controls because I pretended to be pissed. This, this, the, 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 the customs controls just kind of just went, like, go away, go away. And, uh, and I kind of managed to get to the last, the last passport control when these two Arab guys in front of me start having an argument attracting all the attention of the border guards. Mm. And my friend Alistair starts to come down the stairs at Friedrichstrasse's railway station into, into the main hall. And this paper bag bursts open and this 20 metres of flag, red flag material comes cascading down the stairs. <laughs> and the, and the, 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 the security there, the, 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 the border guards, they just immediately grabbed him and dragged him off. <laughs> oh, like, no. Here he is. He's like, doesn't want to go over me because he's frightened I'm going to get dragged off. Yeah, and here and here he is getting dragged off, and and as he's walking away, he's like indicating with his eyes for me to look down, and and I looked down and I could see my my trousers had these drain pipes on, and I could see the bottom of this like army uniform sticking because they were a little bit longer than my trousers, yeah. <laughs> sticking out of the bottom of my trousers, and I'm thinking, oh God, look, I can't, what can I do here? I can't, can't yeah. just like run. And these two Arab guys are having a big argument and drawing all this attention and all these border guards coming over. And I'm thinking, if if one of these guards just has a look at me yeah, and, and he sees that, that's it. I've, I've, and, I, and I was resigned to my fate. I thought, that's it. They, that's it now. This is, this, is the, this is the look of the draw. Really. Yeah. You know, I, my mate Alice has been dragged off and now I'm going to get arrested in five minutes. And, and they, didn't, they didn't look. You know, they just kind of dragged off these two Arab guys, dragged them off. And and I was left there to go over the over the border defences, and I kind of like positioned myself so that I thought that the the, the border guard, if he looked through the mirror, he couldn't see my, the bottom of my feet. You know. Yeah, and yeah. I got through, and, and I managed to get through, and, and I had wow. a uniform then. Wow. Is there the, what what? So there's the uniform. Anything else that you've that you've? Uh, well, that the, you've I managed. To get, I managed to get. I managed to get everything else out eventually as well. But that that uniform just recently in, in the Allied Museum here in Berlin, mm-hmm. in Darlin, they had an exhibition of a hundred artifacts from like East and West, and um, they exhibited my uniform with my little story explaining how I'd got it out of East Berlin because you know like it was it was a very it was a very rare artifact. They, probably the only uniform in the West, right, from East Berlin. And, mm-hmm. and the, the the US Army, uh, they really wanted to have this uniform. They kept bothering me about it, asking yeah. me if, when, if I would sell it because they wanted it. You know? And I'm like, what do you want it for? Like, oh, we'll just, you know, 
we need it. We'd like to have it. You know, what are you going to do? You know, I thought they're going to break into me flat at one point. Probably. <laughs> um, you know. How? So what was it? It wasn't. It wasn't just a regular Volks Army uniform yeah, then. It was, yeah, it was, it was a regular Volks Army. Uniform. Oh right. Yeah, but it, but, but it's but just it, they'd never seen one in the West at that point because the they, war was still they'd there. never seen one in the flesh, yeah, <laughs> or, or in the cloth, yeah. You know? They'd only ever seen the photographs, and they, so yeah. they had no idea how it was made. Yeah. You know what it was made from, whether the chemicals that they used to dye it, whether they could be picked up with sensors and all. They, yeah. you know, they, it was it was it was a uniform that had been coloured vegetable colouring, yeah. like British uniforms were. You know they needed it for that. They wanted to replicate yeah. it, basically. You know, must have been an interesting uh, visit to the dry cleaners when you wanted it clean. Uh, I didn't take it anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, it, you know, it's it stayed. I mean, my wife sometimes wears my jacket. Actually, <laughs> much to my concern, but um, you know, it's 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 just, it's an artifact. Which, I mean, today you can just go to the flea market, yeah, and get one today. You know, that with no 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 incident surrounding. You know, but the yeah. uh, back then it was a real. It was yeah, a, but yours has got a real story behind it, which is uh, makes it makes it much more interesting. Yeah, that's why they put it on display. Um, so in in Berlin. You know, where, where would you recommend that people could just go and see a part of Berlin that still feels a bit like uh, the GDR? Is there well, anywhere that, that? Yeah, you have to go out in the outskirts of Berlin. Yeah, you know, go to somewhere like Matam or something like that. You know, yeah, yeah go, go out in the sticks a little bit. Um, it's all changing, of course. It's all been renovated, so it's not it's not so easy to find, to be honest, but. If the, the further out you get out of Berlin, the more likely you are to see more things that are very kind of like East Berlin or something. Yeah. Okay. Like Pankow is still not changed that much, really. You yeah. Know, a few of the buildings have been renovated, but it's not that. It's not. It's still the same kind of feeling. You know, you can still go to a really shabby restaurant and get swore at by the people who standing in there smoking cigarette and you say can I have some more bread and the bowl of rice and tut and kind of put the fag out and then bring you yeah. some bread that, that they had cut like two or three days ago you know you can still yeah. find that in each problem. still get that East German service then if you yeah, the, look hard enough the surly the surly service of the East Germans yeah, so you still get that sometimes yeah. yeah I think people have views of the GDR and the Stasi and, and you know they they have that viewpoint, but is there anything about the GDR that you think people might be unaware of, or anything that you found really surprising? Well, I mean, yeah, sure. This there's a million and one things I think that people don't know. You know, I mean, just the fact that you couldn't go to a music shop and buy a, the records that you wanted. You know, that was one mm-hmm. thing. But or or even for that matter, an instrument. Yeah, they didn't make them. Any, they made they made it classical instruments in East Berlin, like violins and things, acoustic guitars. But you couldn't find an electric guitar, and and there were no shops that sold them. Yeah. And you needed a permit to be able to own one, and you needed a permit to be able to play one. Yeah, and so and and then and and and, and once you got the guitar, you had to find an amplifier, and once you got the amplifier, you had to find a cable that would and and a jack plug that you could plugins and these are all things that weren't available it wasn't like you went to the shop and you went and bought yourself a cable yeah. i'll do it myself you know i'll sold that cable with that jack plug and make myself a cable but neither was the cable available nor was the jack plug yeah and, and you might have a guitar you might even have a, acquired an amplifier but plugging it together was an impossible because you couldn't find it even, even the smallest thing like buying an iron 
or a, or a toaster. It came with a separate plug, but it, the plug wasn't in the box. It was something which was part of the five-year plan. So you'd buy a toaster, and then you might have to wait like a year and a half to be able to buy the plug. And then you've got the plug for the toaster, but they don't have the actual plug that goes into the wall needs also to be fitted on the other end, but they're also part of the five-year plan too. So if you don't have a plug at home already, you have to wait another two years before they make enough plugs that you can yeah. actually buy one to put on the on the end of your plug for your toaster. Or they'd make things like, you know, you get slippers in the summer and you get sandals in winter. And it was like, oh, topsy-turvy, you know. It was like... Uh, 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 they, they had but in in the west when we had like the the dawn of the walkman age right they, mm-hmm. they didn't want to be done out of this idea that people in the east could also have such a thing as a walkman and you'd see it in their kind of electronic shop in the middle of you know presented a east german version of a walkman it wasn't called a walkman it, it looked like a brick it was about the same size as a brick it couldn't fit in any pocket <laughs> but it was sort of a small portable cassette player. Cost like, you know, two and a half thousand East German marks. Well, you, 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 your average East German earned 600 marks a month. So, you know, it's yeah. like a, a Traband cost 10,000 East German marks and, and, and their version of a Walkman cost two and a half thousand, you know, it's like a television yeah. set cost two and a half thousand. Yeah. So it's like, it was like, you know, people didn't have it because it was just like out, yeah. out of everybody and everybody's price. Rate. Yeah. Do you think, do you think there was anything good about the GDR? Oh yeah. Loads of stuff. You know, it wasn't just cheap and an and affordable drinking and eating. Yeah. Um, I th- you know, I think that there was a lot of really positive things on the social level, which I thought were really good. You know, the way they treated the, the, uh, the mothers, for example, if you had a baby, you got a year off work. So you could look, yeah. after, you, look after your kid, full pay. And the minute you, your child went to kindergarten, you, you got your job back. You yeah, know, there's like these kind of things. Really, it's a lot of social things. The, the whole system was geared around making kids happy. So everything was like, you know, you go to the, the toy shops and the toy shops would be like Lavin's Cave. Was, I, mean, I, I thought to myself, if I wanted, if I was a, a kid in East Germany, it must be fantastic being a kid in East Germany. Yeah, you know, you, you know, all these like fascinating space toys they had and like tanks and stuff, remote yeah. control. Uh, it was all, it was all, it was amazing. Yeah, it was like brilliant stuff you know uh, of course we had all these kind of stuff in the west as well but like it, i remember i think you know my my attraction for the east stems back from being a small child when i used to collect stamps as a kid I, you know I'd, I'd collect stamps from the, all over the place but the ones from eastern europe like czechoslovakia and stuff it all had it either had technology on it like space technology rockets yoda gagarin you know all kind of stuff satellites or it had you know tanks and trains and planes or it had smiling children now growing up in manchester in the 60s and 70s it was a really f- miserable place you know it was like yeah. everyone was on strike and no one had any money in the winter time even we dying of smog inhalation you know it was a really grim childhood you know in the place where we grew up as like working class kids and, yeah and uh, you know this happy smiling children on these stamps obviously like it was quite attractive you know it was like well they're all happy why they're all happy so that was i think that was some kind of like subliminally ingrained image i had of eastern europe that when i actually went to east eastern europe and saw it i loved it i loved everything about it you know that i loved the crapness about it i loved the yeah. improvisation i loved the way the people 
club together to kind of help each other out. Everybody knew somebody who could do something for you. You know, yeah. Uh, the, the one the one thing which was which I discovered was the the currency of of getting your phone fixed or your car fixed or your or your heating fixed or whatever. It wasn't even Western currency. It, that wasn't that wasn't the thing that people wanted because. You could get Western currency by, you know, one way. Like you could either swap it on the street or, you know, you could get it off some relative or whatever. What they needed to be able to do things like that was pornography. And pornography was the secret currency in the whole of Eastern Europe to get your phone fixed or get your phone put in, <laughs> in fact. Or get your, you know, get, if your radiator was leaking, you know, if you, if you phoned up the state-owned, you know, radiator repair company, they'd come yeah. two years later. There's a waiting list as long as your arm, you know. So, yeah. so, so if if you said I have, you know, special magazines for you here or video cassettes, it was like the guy be there in ten minutes. And <laughs> got, got everything, get everything repaired. Well, that's not something I've uh, read about in the history book. Yeah. Now, I, th- I don't think we can, you know, we can finish without talking about B movie. Okay. <laughs> or do you not want to talk about B movie? <laughs> well, yeah, of course, you know, it's it's a it's a, it's a changed a part of my life really you know it's, it's documents my life in west berlin, yeah but also because it's, it's only about forgotten west berlin really. you know it's 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 obviously had some kind of impact on my life because it means i have to travel around the world showing this film and you know for me the film was really just a, i thought well you know what do people want what gain from such a film west berlin what they what do they need to know you know so i just kind of tried to explain the people that I met, the people that I knew, the things that I did uh, in West Berlin. There's mm. very little about East Berlin, unfortunately, because I wasn't allowed to film in East Berlin. Yeah. Like, you couldn't take your camera into East Berlin. Um, so it's just about this forgotten island, really, of West Berlin. And, and, and using, like, original footage from the time. It's not all my footage. Some things are from Necromantic, some things are from The Tube, some things are from my friends, who are, people who are new who film things, just to, to help narrate the, the, the story, really, with pictures. Um, and there's like 2% of the film we've reenacted to make links between scenes and things, but it's ne- most of it is original footage with music from the time. Yeah. You know? and, uh, and with this film, of, you know, I travel around the world showing the movie... Because the film is an educational film. It's been, it's been incorporated into the school curriculum here in Berlin, or in Germany. So it's part of the history of Berlin now. So, Wow. So as it has all these refer- knockoffs, you know, I showed B-movie on the DMZ between North and South Korea. Um, <laughs> a, a film festival there, they projected it on the wall of this building, this huge building, so the people in North Korea could see the pictures. Even right. Looked- Are there any books that you recommend for anybody interested in Berlin, oh, the GDR. Of course, there's the Once Upon a Time in the East by Dave Rimmer, which is an essential book to read. It's about our travels to uh, Czechoslovakia and Romania and Hungary in the final days of East Germany. Yeah, I have before got that one and I highly recommend literally, that one as well. Literally before the wall comes down. Well, Mark, I really do appreciate the time you've spent with me. This is far longer than I'd intended, but you've got such great stories to tell. I didn't want to stop you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope it'll be interesting forever, is it? Yeah. I, d- I think it will be. I mean, I have had people ask, can you interview Mark Reader? 
you know, it, yours is a fascinating story and a brilliant insight into areas of uh, East Germany, East Berlin that, you know, nobody else has, has really seen or experienced. So I'm, I'm delighted that, you, that you've made the time to talk to me. You're very welcome, man. No, I wish I'd just go out and just buy my album, Mauerstadt, then they'd be happy then. <laughs> okay. No, <laughs> the, we'll the, musical, the musical soundtrack to the, to the, the idea of like what is, you know, a, the wall in people's minds now, you know, we have to get rid of that one. We'll definitely promote that and, uh, and B-movie as well. Thank you. Well, I hope you found that as insightful as I did. There's extra information in the show notes, including the infamous Glenica Bridge video that almost caused the international incident, as well as Mark's own film, B-Movie, his recommended book, and his latest album, Mauerstadt. The show notes can be found at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 12. Don't forget, you can join our discussion group on Facebook. Just search for Cold War Conversations. And we're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod. If you like what you're hearing, please leave reviews on iTunes or with your podcast provider or share with your friends. Thank you very much for listening. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.